more and more retailers are now hiring their own category managers and using software, as you described, uh, that Hivery has to really evaluate properly what products are put on what shelves, where, what eye location. We're really seeing science getting much more involved, so it's not a gut feeling. Well, hello there. This is Milena, and welcome to another episode of Scientific Mavericks Podcast. This episode is a part of Business Focus series where we bring to you business leaders and experts in the retail space. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Hivery. Hivery is the pioneer of hyperlocal retailing, combining artificial intelligence, operations research, and human-centered design models to help CPGs and retailers generate an increased return on physical retail space investment. And today, it is my great pleasure to introduce Phil Lampert, also known as the Supermarket Guru. Phil is one of America's leading consumer trend watchers and analysts on consumer behavior, marketing trends, new products, and the changing retail landscape. Phil is the founder and editor of The Lampert Report and SupermarketGuru.com. He's also the founder and CEO of the Retail Dietitians Business Alliance. So without further ado, we'll kick this episode off with Phil explaining changes in the supermarket shopping experience, as well as recently emerged trends that have already begun to solidify in our everyday lives. There are a lot of changes happening in supermarkets here in the U.S., First thing is that we've gone from having a very pleasant experience where supermarkets built themselves to be uh, experiential, where you would go in, they wanted you to spend as much time as you can. I would say that no one right now presents a terrific shopping experience. Their food courts are closed, their self-service bars are closed, their salad bars are closed, their olive bars are, co- are closed. Everything that they've been doing the past five or six years uh, to make a really cool, great, inviting shopping experience is out the window. Uh, the question is going to be, what happens post-COVID and how will people react to going back into the store? I think that here in the U.S., Masks are going to be worn for a couple of years, and we really have to look at how we can make that shopping experience delightful uh, while wearing a mask. It used to be that you could walk up to Betty the Baker and she'd be smiling as you, you know, picked your artisan bread and you'd smile back and you'd have these great aromas. Well, that's gone. All the breads are in sealed bags. Uh, We don't have that aroma anymore. We can't see Betty's face to see if she's smiling. She can't see our face if we're smiling. So now it's a very different shopping experience. Everybody has masks on or should have masks on. There's plexiglass shields separating the cashier or the person behind the fish counter from shoppers. So it's not a pleasant shopping experience at all, which is why, frankly, what we've seen is a huge uptick in those people who are ordering online and either picking up curbside or having it delivered. There's a lot of changes that are taking place and retailers are struggling to figure out which of those are the most important. Certainly when it comes to the health and and the safety of both their workers and shoppers, that's number one. 
No one here is really making money on delivery, but on curbside pickup, you can make a lot of money. So I think what we're going to see is a lot more focus of online ordering, curbside pickup. We're going to see a reduction in the amount of SKUs that are on supermarket shelves. We really just don't need to have 100 different bottles of olive oil in an olive oil department. That's one of the things that we learned with the broken supply chain, that we really don't need all these offerings that we've got so that we can make that store more efficient, that we can make it smaller. Pre-COVID, the average American spent about 22 minutes on every shopping trip that they went, and they went 2.2 times a week to buy groceries. Now they're going once a week, and they want to get in and out of the store very quickly, and we don't have any hard data yet, but I would say it's somewhere around 10 minutes. So how can we make that shopping experience still fun, uh, still flexible, but much more efficient. And those retailers like Aldi, for example, who have been built on efficiency, um, have done extremely well. Also keep in mind that here in the U.S., we're facing a recession. We're in a recession. We're facing very high unemployment numbers. People are watching those dollars and counting their pennies. So that brings another element into the retailer's headache-making events of the day. So how can I build a business that not only can survive, but can grow? And a lot of that's going to be through technology. How long can we expect these changes to last? And can you elaborate on how you expect technology to help retailers and manufacturers to not only survive in these unprecedented times, but also grow their businesses? The reality is that, at least here in the States, the cases keep on increasing, not decreasing. So grocers are trying to figure out, number one, is there a second phase of this? How will that affect the supply chain? Will we go back to not having certain products on supermarket shelves, which was the first time that that happened in most Americans' lifetimes, and it really scared them. They were buying up everything they could. They were hoarding things. So what retailers have done, and in certain cases are still doing, is limiting the supply of certain products, whether it's toilet paper or paper towels. We just heard from the CEO of the Clorox company who said Clorox wipes will not be on store shelves again till probably the middle of 2021. We've seen Google make a worldwide announcement that they're not allowing their employees back into Google headquarters until July of 2021. So we're far from over. And, and I believe that what we're going to see is, is even more ramping up of different technologies to help grocers. For example, they've been taking people and workers' temperatures by having you know a handheld device. There are now some devices that you just stand in front of, and it has a readout for your temperature with a green light or a red light letting you come in the store. We're going to see more technologies for cleaning, everything from the check stand belt to the door handles that are more effective. We're just going to see a lot more attention being paid to cleanliness, to distancing, to keeping the store count down. And as a result, that puts a lot of pressure on retailers. Keep in mind that here in the States, the average supermarket is around 40,000 square foot. Those stores were built 
with the idea to put as many people in as you could, and that's going to increase your sales. Well, now if you're limited to 20 or 30% occupancy, that takes a toll on your bottom line. So we are going to see some stores shut down. We are going to see some ghost supermarkets uh, that are just focused on delivery. We are going to see some supermarkets perhaps cut themselves in half um, and just have a smaller store with smaller assortments for people and use the rest of the store just for fulfillment uh, for online orders. So, Phil, earlier you have referenced the common choice overload problem that consumers are facing every day at grocery stores. That is a um, hundred different types of olive oil example. But in order to solve the problem, we need to understand the root of it. And the cause of this effect, if you'd like, is an inefficient new product development and introduction into grocery stores. Can you shed some light on how the decision making is made in the US in regards to introduction of new products? into stores? So pre-COVID, it would be where somebody had a terrific product, came to a retailer's buying office, presented the product, presented the price, usually had a whole bunch of, of consumer data that said, we've tested this in focus groups. Consumers love it. We expect that you can sell X amount per store per week. And the retailer would most likely give it a shot. If it didn't work, uh, the product would be off the shelf probably within three months. Today, it's done virtually. You can try to sell a supermarket, but it's very unlikely that they'll even make an appointment with you right now. What they're doing is they're reconfiguring the store. Typically, U.S. stores do a store reset twice a year, so you might have to wait uh, for three months or six months to get a new product on the shelves. But the entire configuration of the store is going to change. So right now, it's really hard for a new product to attract a retailer's attention and get on the shelves. We don't know how much refrigeration space post-COVID is still going to exist. What we know, one of the biggest challenges is prepared foods. Prepared foods were really on the rise here in the U.S. A lot of stores have put in what's called grocerants, which are restaurants, full-service restaurants, as part of uh, their supermarket. Those are all closed. Prepared foods now are not nearly reaching the amount of people that they used to meet. I mentioned that salad bar that's now closed. What a lot of retailers have done is put the prepared foods in those black plastic containers in the salad bar because that's refrigerated and it's very unappetizing looking. Most in-store signage is not being used. Uh, one of the reasons for that and one of the problems and the supply chain is still in many cases broken, especially if we look at uh, meat, they're not getting the, the shelves stocked fully. So it's hard for a retailer to promote anything because the way it used to work is you would build your circulars and your promotions two or three months ahead. Well, I don't know of one retailer who, who would say that they can guarantee what products will be on their store shelves in two or three months from now. They just don't know. So the whole new product introduction system is under evaluation as they're starting to cut products, they're starting to cut space in the store. Their online store might still have over 40,000 products in it, sometimes even more. 
but in-store, that might well be reduced to 15,000 or 20,000 products to make that shopping experience better after we get through this. What should smart retailers, with the help of manufacturers, of course, do to ensure that they thrive in the coming years? For a retailer to be smart, they have to know their customer base. They have to know what the foods are that the customers want. They have to know the demographics. They have to know the health conditions. If you're in an area, for example, Florida, that has a lot of older Americans and has a higher uh, incidence of diabetes and heart disease, you've got to stock your shelves very differently than if you're in New York City with a much younger demographic. So the smart retailers, with the help of manufacturers, are really honing down to that individual store, that zip code, and finding out everything they can about that zip code. And gone are the days of every store in a chain having the same assortment in the same location. That hasn't happened for a long time. And frankly, it shouldn't happen. When I go into a supermarket, I want to feel that that store knows me, has the right products for me, especially now during COVID and post-COVID. I don't want to have to go to three or four or five stores. Before this, you did. People shopped around. They went to drug chain for milk because it was cheaper there than in the supermarkets. They went to the butcher because they wanted fresh meat. They might have gone to a, a farmer's market for produce. Well, that's going to change. People are not switching channels nearly as much as they were. And in fact, people are switching retailers more than they were pre-COVID because, you know, they went to a retail, their normal retailer and they were out of toilet paper. So they said, hey, where can I get toilet paper? So they visited other stores and that is continuing. I couldn't agree more with your statement in regards to the importance of assortment planning at individual store level. Given that we have been speaking of technology and how that can help retailers ensure they survive and thrive in the coming years, Hyvery has developed a suite of world's first products that combine artificial intelligence and optimization models to deliver hyper-local recommendations at an individual store level in seconds. So as you have phrased it, gone are the days when retailers have to employ a team of specialists to choose the right assortment and draw a planogram based on a gut feeling. Hyvery's products can deliver data-driven recommendations in a matter of minutes or even seconds at a click of a button. And this is just one of many examples of technology that can help retailers thrive. But if we take a step back, can you share with our audience how the decision-making has been made generally in the U.S. in regards to assortment planning? Sure. Well, there's two parts to it. One is the category manager and the other one is the buyer. Typically, the way it has been is the category manager has not been a, an employee of the retailer, but rather the employee of a manufacturer who has typically been the biggest brand in that category. Obviously, you can see some conflicts in that. If I'm the category manager for beer and I work for Anheuser-Busch, I'm going to do everything that I can, no matter what I say or what the rules are, to push Budweiser over Miller. That's changing a bit. 
more and more retailers are now hiring their own category managers and using software as you described uh, that Hivery has to really evaluate properly what products are put on what shelves, where, what eye location. We're really seeing science getting much more involved, so it's not a gut feeling. One other point, what we're also seeing in Rayleigh's is a privately owned chain here, Northern California with about 120 stores. Their registered dietitian went to the owner and said, I'm really concerned about sugar. So what she did with his permission is she took all the sugary cereals, basically for kids, put them on the bottom shelf, took all the healthy cereals and put them at eye level. She's now done that with sauces and salad dressings and, and other products that have typically been high in sugar. It's been hugely successful. And again, it goes back to the point of really knowing your customer base and being able to do things that are for the good of your shoppers. And this example goes back to your point that you have made in the very beginning of our conversation. That is one of the trends that we can expect to ingrain deeper into our everyday lives being the emphasis on the health of consumers. Can you elaborate more on how retailers can involve dietitians to help consumers make informed and better for their health choices. So here in the US, and I know in Australia as, as well, especially with Woolies, there are retail dietitians. Before this, they were in stores. In some chains, they, they were in every single store helping to give advice. But one of the few benefits of COVID-19 has been where retail dietitians have been able to expand their reach through social media. So what they've been doing is going on Facebook Live or Instagram and posting recipes that are healthier, posting health advice, posting advice to, on how to deal with stress. I think that, that it all comes down to the retail dietitian. And uh, again, if I, if I look at Woolworths, they've been brilliant at a lot of the things that they've done. Coles has also done a, a wonderful job. If you look at what Coles had implemented now probably three or four years ago uh, with their quiet hour where parents could go shopping with children who are on the autistic spectrum where there wasn't any noise in the store. Nobody was on the loudspeaker. There wasn't any music playing and so on. Uh, so I think every retailer has a responsibility to do this. And I know here in the U.S., the retailers um, who have the retail dietitians have done a fabulous job during this, keeping people educated, keeping them motivated, and that will continue after COVID as well. So the nature of our conversation today has been the trends and changes we have been observing recently in the retail industry, and we have identified more than a handful of those. But what do you think is the biggest change that will or should happen in the retail space? We've got a situation where, at least here in the U.S., the workers in supermarkets are paid, for the most part, a minimum wage. They're now getting hazard pay. Their union is, is trying to get them under the essential worker banner and increase their pay. Uh, we have supermarkets that have hired hundreds of thousands of more workers. Walmart, for example, 
We also have a changing workforce where people who are making minimum wage are saying, hey, it's not worth it for me. I'm going to go on unemployment. I, I don't want to risk my life. I'm, I'm not going to work in a supermarket anymore. So I think that the biggest change is going to be in our workforce. How do we get a workforce in supermarkets that enjoys working in a supermarket, feels safe working in a supermarket, gets paid a decent wage for being in a supermarket? Uh, we do have retailers around the country that have done that. Uh, Wegmans, for example, Publix, Gelson's, other ones where they've invested in training. So there's two sides to, to the coin. You know, some of the larger retailers say, I can't afford to train my workers because they're minimum wage and they turn over four times a year. Then there's other retailers who say, hey, you know, if I train them and I pay them well, they're not going to turn over four times a year. They're, they're going to have a career with me and they're, they're going to continue up the ladder. There's a chain here called Save-A-Lot. They were just named one of the best retailers to work for women because they spend a lot of money in training women and they want women to advance their careers and, and so on. And it turns out that their CEO, who is a woman, started out as a part-time stock person there years ago and worked her way up to be CEO. That, that's fabulous. That's what we need in, in the supermarket business. We need a career path. We need for people to make a decent wage, feel good about their job, and that's going to change everything. And I think that's the number one challenge and the number one change that we're going to see. The other changes, taking products off shelves, making smaller stores, doing online, that's easy. It's really the employee part that's the most challenging for these retailers. So every job in that store has to really be rethinked and really say, okay, what can I do for efficiency? What can I do for the customer? And certainly what can I do for my worker that makes it all work? Mm, absolutely. What other model changes can we expect to see in the coming years? I think we'll expect to see a lot more consolidation. If you take a look at what's going on right now in the convenience store world, 7-Eleven bought Speedway. We're seeing smaller C-store chains as well as large ones be bought up. I think we're going to see this, the same thing with supermarkets. I think we're going to see some independence. And when I say independent, that doesn't mean somebody who has one store. They might have 100 stores. They might have 250 stores. Coming out of that, tallying up all the numbers. And yes, the first quarter uh, or the last quarter, stores did very well because people are hoarding. But that is over. Um, so now we're starting to see volumes go down. And I think we will see a lot of stores either closing or selling out because they got out their calculator and they've said, wow, this is what this has cost us. And it's not a viable business. So I think that's going to be one of the big changes that we're going to see in the retail space as well. Other things, certainly autonomous vehicles. One of the problems with our supply chain has been we didn't have enough trucks to get the hogs to slaughter, so they had to be euthanized. We didn't have enough trucks to get milk to the proper facility to pack it, so the milk was thrown down the drain. And the reason that we don't have trucks is for two reasons. Number one, they were in the wrong places. And number two, here in the U.S., we've got an aging truck driver 
force. So they're retiring and not a lot of people wake up in the morning saying, hey, I want to be a truck driver when I grow up. So we don't have a lot of new people coming in to it. And also a few years ago here in the U.S., they started limiting the amount of hours that a truck driver could drive in a single day. And there's actually a governor on the truck to prevent it. So what happens is they get paid by the trip. So if I can do five trips in a week, I'm going to make more money than if I do three trips. So that's why they're driving 12, 14, 16 hours so that they can make more money. Well, that's out of it now. So one of the solutions is going to be autonomous vehicles. I also think we're going to see much more local production of food. And especially when it comes to produce, indoor farming. So it's absolutely silly if you think about it. And this is one of the reasons that we have so many recalls. 96% of all lettuce sold in the U.S. supermarkets come from California. Now, I'm in California, so that's cool for me. But you know something? To take a bag of lettuce that retails for $2.99 and ship it from California to New York, that's absolutely absurd. With a lot of offices not reopening and a lot more people you know, working from home, I expect that we're going to see food production facilities in a lot of the office buildings. It could be in downtown Manhattan. It could be in Chicago. It'll be in those high-density populations where there's going to be empty office space. And these buildings, uh, again, just like a supermarket, are not built to be empty. You know, whoever owns them needs that rent to pay the mortgage, to keep the lights on and so on. So I think that there's going to be a lot of good deals for that. Also, there's been a lot of co-packed product here in the U.S. from smaller companies. Well, these co-packers also pack for the retailer's own store brand. And when the pandemic happened, the retailer, for the most part, had their own brand. And it really increased prices of that because they went to their supplier and they said, hey, I'm giving you this much volume. I'm going to give you more. I'm going to take your full production. So I think we're going to see a lot of the smaller companies either close up or, frankly, find a new way of producing their foods. And that could be that they open up their own local factories and get into the production business versus doing it the way they, they were doing it. The other problem that we have is our borders are closed. And, you know, we have this huge fight taking place between the U.S. and the EU as it relates to Boeing and Airbus, where the French government was supposedly subsidizing the price of Airbus planes to airlines. So what the U.S. has done is they've levied uh, a tariff or a tax on imported goods from many countries in the EU cheese, wine, as well as non-food products. So now we're faced with a lot of those imported products that we can't get from any place else. They're going to increase their prices 20, 40, 50% to pay for this tariff. We're not importing a lot of the products that we used to import. We're not exporting a lot of products that we used to export. All that's going to have a huge impact as well. So, Phil, to finish off our conversation today, I would like to ask you one last question. What do you wish people would have asked you more often? What I would like everybody to ask me, whether it's a shopper, 
whether it's the CEO of a supermarket chain, whether it's the store manager of a supermarket chain, whether it's a, a product brand manager, is how do we understand better what shoppers want tomorrow? How can we get into their heads? How can we really be more predictive in nature? So the average product here in the U.S., there's about 17,000 food and beverage products that are introduced every year. At the end of three years, only about a thousand of them are left. When I look at the trillions probably of dollars that have been spent on product development that have been wasted, it's not because it wasn't a good idea. It's because they didn't talk to shoppers the right way. And I've been on the other side of, of one-way mirrors hundreds of times with brand managers with lousy ideas. And the focus group moderator is paid by the company. And that one person who says, yeah, I love that idea. I'll buy that. I'll buy it five times a week. And the brand manager says, oh, see, I told you it was a good idea. This is going to be a huge success. Then they manufacture it and they go out of business. So it's really, how do we get into the head, in the heart, in the soul of shoppers better and have a much better success rate when we bring out new products? We don't need 17,000 new products every year. We don't. We need maybe 500, uh, but 500 really good ones and throw 500 really bad ones off the shelf. And what we've seen during COVID-19 has been real interesting globally, according to Nielsen. A lot of the uh, health and beauty aid and cleansing products that were good for the environment, if you would, like seventh generation and so on, consumers didn't want those. Consumers wanted Procter & Gamble products that really worked, that, that you know, could kill the virus. They wanted hand sanitizer that you know, was 75% alcohol, not the one that smelled good, that was nicer on my hands and things like that. So I think it's just touching the heart, soul, and, and mind of, of the shopper better. Thank you for listening until the very end of this podcast episode. Clearly, you have enjoyed our conversation today. So I encourage you to check out two other podcasts that Phil hosts. They're called Lost in the Supermarket and Farm Food Facts. You can expect new releases every week. And lastly, if you are interested in learning more about Hyvery's suite of products, you can now request a demo. Contact us via marketing at hybrid.com and reference this podcast. Stay tuned and till the next time, everyone. <laughs>